The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Thank you, as always, for being here. You're listening to the Paul Leslie Hour. Usually we get right into the show, but I wanted to take just a moment to talk to you all. First of all, the show is now in its 16th year. A number of you have said that you would like to support the show. Well, now you can. If you've ever gotten enjoyment or inspiration from the Paul Leslie Hour, consider becoming a patron. Just go to patreon.com slash the Paul Leslie Hour. It's with great excitement I announce our special guest, Bob McDill. He is a legendary figure in the world of songwriting, now retired. A past guest on this show referred to him as a gentleman and a master songwriter. He's had more than 300 of his songs recorded through the 70s into the 90s. 31 became number one hits. He's been regarded as one of Music Row's most respected songwriters, and some of the artists who have recorded his work would include Don Williams, Bobby Bear, Conway Twitty, Loretta Lynn, Amy Lou Harris, Alan Jackson, Waylon Jennings, Alabama, Keith Whitley. Among his many awards, BMI Awards, ASCAP Awards, he was inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame in 1985. Bob McDill, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Paul. Glad to be here. It's an honor to talk to you. You too. So you're retired these days. What would you say is the most beautiful thing about being retired? Oh, gosh. I Just getting up in the morning and not having anything to do is thinking about... Thinking about what you might want to do that day and knowing that if you don't want to do it, you don't have to. <laughs> I, I garden some, and we, my sweetheart and I travel, and we're still big readers, and uh, so it's, it's, it's nice. Every day is a Saturday. <laughs> that sounds beautiful. You just mentioned the traveling, and I know you had told me that you recently were in the United Kingdom. That's right, yes. How was that? It was fun. We got to we stayed a week in London and took advantage of that new direct from from Nashville to London, and uh, got to see uh, Churchill's underground headquarters during uh, during the Blitz, and uh, got to see the uh, Dover uh, Fortress where they orchestrated under underground where they orchestrated the uh, D-Day invasion, and a lot of a lot of other things too. But those two were very quite memorable. Do you still listen to a lot of music? No, I do not. Why is that? Well, it's just, it's lost its appeal for me. I, I have two things I listen to. One is, and and very occasionally, one is Puccini's Arias, and the other one is that the uh, score from Braveheart. <laughs> what, what a, an eclectic music thing that I have, but I really don't listen to anything anymore. I guess it's burnout all those years of having to listen and having to be aware of what what's new and what isn't and so forth. Now, both of the types or the both the selections of music that you mentioned there are instrumental music. Would you say that personally you're more moved or more interested in melody or more moved and interested in lyric? Well, either one can either one can move me. Uh, 
I think lyrics, lyric writing is a dying art. I, from what I hear on from, on PBS, you know, accidentally, and what I hear on the PA, whatever those are at, the, at Walmart and Hold, Home Depot and those, I mean, uh, Walgreens and Home Depot and those places, lyrics are just chants. They, they, these lyrics are pretty much meaningless. I, these young people seem to have nothing to say. I, I know I sound like an old fogey, but of course I am. It seems to be the same, you know, uh, a string of tired old cliches that we would have. Well, never mind. I've said enough about that. I am <laughs> sounding like an old geezer. <laughs> well, I I'm identifying with what you're saying, and I was born in the '80s, so I understand exactly what you're what you're saying. But I don't listen to country music anymore, or or Americana. All I'm hearing is just the the pop hits on these uh, the sound systems and department stores. So there could be some wonderful things in country and Americana that I don't even know about. What about the music you grew up with? Tell us about the stuff that made a big impression on you. Oh boy, we had everything. No generation will benefit from all that like like mine did. We. We well, first of all, I grew up in the corner, southeast corner of Texas, right there on the Louisiana border, and we had we had Cajun French Cajun music on the radio, and we had a lot of German population. We had German polkas, and we had country, and we had the beginnings of rock and roll. We had western swing. All this is on the radio, and then then you get a little older, and television comes along, and you've got those variety shows with uh, you know the the uh, opera stars from the Met singing singing the arias from the latest big operas, and you've got Broadway stars singing the big hits from Oklahoma and, and so forth, and the big Broadway hits. We just had everything. And then the big bands, and then Mr. Peer went south and brought all those great Latin bands up from Cuba and Brazil, and we had all that on the radio. So it was just endless. So when you embarked on a career in music, what was your original vision? What was it that you were trying to accomplish? Well, I, I didn't really didn't know. I didn't know. I liked to write songs, but I didn't know if that was going to be it. I figured out pretty quickly after watching a few recording sessions that I was not going to be a studio musician. I wasn't good enough. And uh, so I just sort of fell into songwriting. That was really... I guess my first love, and, and it, it survived all the other changes I went through. I was, I was well suited for that, perfectly suited for, for songwriting, and, and not suited so much for leadership. It's what a publisher and a producer and these people have to, have to do, is, is lead, and I didn't want to lead anybody. I had no, no uh, inclination toward leadership. I have an album of yours on vinyl entitled Short Stories. Yeah. And I have to say, you are more known for your songwriting, but you really, you sang great on that album. Thank you. I'm hoping you can tell us, what are your memories of making that record? Uh, well, some of it. We, we brought some of those cuts, which are pretty, pretty rocking, like... Uh, Goodbye, Jim Crow. We brought the old rhythm section from Memphis up, but Alan and Alan Dickey and I had, had 
had known when we were working in the studio there. They were the studio band, Stan Kessler's studio. I brought them up from uh, Memphis, and they played on some of those rock, sort of rocking boogie ones. But some of them we just built from scratch, like Come Early Morning, Catfish John, Alan and I just built those. I'd go out and put out a guitar and a vocal, and we'd start adding things. And uh, that's where you get that jug band sort of thing with Come Early Morning. Uh, and Alan would put on a harmonica, and I'd put on a banjo and so forth. Lots of fun back then. As Susan Taylor was around, she'd put on a mandolin and a little cymbal or a bell or whatever, just whatever we wanted. I wanted to ask you about that song, Catfish John. We had Alan Reynolds on this show, which was a real thrill, yeah. and he touched on it a little bit, but I think that your version of Catfish John is, is just the best. Tell us about the inspiration. What got that song going? Uh, I had, you know, you log those things. We don't realize until we look back how we log everything that sounds good to us. Uh, one of my dad's stories, he was a little boy growing up in rural Mississippi, and he was a big storyteller, and Catfish John was his was a friend of his when he was a little boy, and he told stories about Catfish John, things Catfish John would say. And he was a pretty rough old character, apparently, but when uh, I went, we had the hit on that, and I went home to visit for Christmas, and my dad said, well, you wrote a song about my old friend Catfish John. I said, yes, sir. He said, well, you cleaned him up a little bit, though, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> Because catfish could use some poor, bad language and, and uh, be pretty rough, apparently. And that's why Mama didn't want the little boys hanging around him. As you were mentioning, the, the, you were mentioning Jack Clement. Was he a character? Oh, a character, absolutely, yeah. He was a great guy, to, a great mentor, and I learned a lot from him. He He was... Had, had some difficulties as a businessman. The checks didn't always, the checks weren't always good. But Jack was a was a great character, and I learned a lot watching him. And he was very good to us. He let us just go into the studio, and the you know the little crew that was around there. We were all, as Jack called us, we were all going through Cowboys College of Musical Knowledge. He he just let us go into the studio with an engineer and. Just dink around and play and experiment. Tell us a little bit about Alan Reynolds. Reynolds was one of my two great mentors. He and he and Dickie Lee were my mentors. Alan's just a great guy. He has a great ear for hits, a great ear, ear for talent. And he's a very patient man. He's a gentleman. He he, uh, he taught me a lot of things, and one of them was get up every morning and go to work at songwriting. He used to give me these lectures when I would appear to be lazy. <laughs> but so many people never learn that. They never get that lecture. Alan, Alan said, what did Henry Mancini said? Someone asked Henry Mancini, where do you get your inspiration? And Henry Mancini said, every morning at nine at the piano. And I, <laughs> you know, Alan would Alan would preach to the his, his young uh, young uh, charges. <laughs> so I learned that lesson. I passed it on to others, too. Dodge Lips, for example. And it's very important. Some people come to town and never learn that lesson. 
Would you say that you got this work ethic from him, or was it a combination of things? Combination of things. I'd certainly heard heard Alan talk about it and heard him uh, lecture me about it. And, uh, but uh, I I wanted success, and no doubt about that. I didn't I didn't want mediocrity. I, I was I was uh, always puzzled by people who, you know, you find yourself as I did. I found myself with Bill Hall as my publisher, and with the best song plugger in town, the best staff in town, associated with Polygram, Welkin and Polygram and Universal Music, the best collectors and payers of royalties in the country. And and was I going to go play tennis three days a week? Hell no. I was going to be in that office. Every morning, I was going to work and put in a week, a hard week, and then go play tennis. But I had so many friends who never got that, never got learned that lesson, and they had these mediocre little careers as a result of it, you see. <laughs> I was listening to your song, Gone Country, and I was thinking about the fact that it's something that, to this day, continues people going to Nashville to try to make it in the world of songwriting or performing or whatever. What advice would you give to a new writer who's arriving in Nashville today? Gosh, I don't know. Networking, I guess. That's so important. You can't be you can't be over there in East Nashville trading songs with your pals and and but, expect to have success you've got to you've got to get in the studios you've got to make yourself obnoxious you've got to be heard you've got to network you've got to make friends and uh i i know of a couple of young people who sit there on the outside of the business and complain about what's what the music sounds like that's coming from inside the business uh, they need to be inside the business and doing those those complaints making those complaints and writing and networking and as Don Slith said it, it's more difficult now than it's ever been for to get a song recorded he said every every big artist now has a posse that's what he calls them which are he's got a publisher and a producer and he's got a handful of people that he likes to co-write with and no one else can get in no one else can get inside that that uh that egg that, that's he's got the artist is constructed around himself or his people have constructed around the artist and you've got to find a way to get inside that, inside those things. On the note of co-writing, and you used the word posse a moment ago. You were using it to describe the, the, the entourage and all that. But yes. when you look at today's songs, it's like they're written by committee. You know, you see the names in the parentheses, and there's five or six sometimes. And <laughs> yeah, And when, you know... Holding up this short story's vinyl record that you did, most of the songs are one or two writers. That's right. Why do you think there's been this change? That's interesting. I, I really don't know. I would not want to be in the business the way it's constructed now. Gosh, you've got five writers on a song. You, you go to the band, but not only do you have to share the the uh, award and the accolades, you've got to share the money. <laughs> I mean, how much can there be when you when you divide a 
song up five ways, and the <laughs> the young writer probably doesn't own any part of the publishing, and he's just getting so he's ending up with what one twentieth of the revenue or something. <laughs> but they write, you know, they that's that posse thing, and uh, I don't understand it, but that's the way it is these days. I was interviewing David Lee Roth at his house in in California. And I asked him, do you still write songs? And he said, it's not like riding a bicycle. It's like riding a race bicycle. You have to do it if you want to keep doing it. Do you agree with that sentiment? Do you think that you haven't written in quite a few years now? Could you go back to it and just write? No. No, I, I think David Lee Roth perfectly right. You've got to keep those chops sharp. You've got to keep it up and keep your mind sharp. And you've got to also know what the public will accept and what they want and what the radio will accept and what it wants and all those things. And I don't know those anymore. On the note of writing today, I know that you write stories. Tell us a little bit about that. I've, I've written a lot of outdoor stories. and uh, published a book of a collection of outdoor stories, uh, which most of them are previously published in magazines, about a mythical mythical hunting and fishing camp based on my own hunting and fishing camp in Squeeze Bottom, Tennessee. A lot of funny characters based on real characters that I've known. Are you writing anything at the moment? Not a a thing. (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) When I look at a lot of the lyrics to some of your songs, like, for example, Song of the South, even aside from the music, the lyrics are just, really, they grab you in, like literature. Right. Was literature a big influence on you? It was. I was an English major in college and fell in love with, you know, Emerson Thoreau and so forth as a freshman. And then there were years there when I had a great fishing buddy, Tom Conley, who taught history at South Carolina. He was a big history buff, wrote books about the South and history of the South, and talented, talented historian. And we there, I've used this term before, we were sort of in danger of becoming professional Southerners there for quite a few years. And we'd get together over the campfire and talk about Southern lit and Southern issues and Southern history. So that and uh, that song and uh, Welcome Home Native Son, which Bobby Bear recorded, you probably never heard that, and uh, Good Old Boys Like Me and maybe another one or two, Roll On Mississippi, those all came out of that, that uh, those conversations. You've really covered just about every single topic when you look at the the breadth of the songs, everything from Really, really, um, you know, like, don't close your eyes. It really, really affects the heart. And then lighthearted things like, baby's got her blue jeans on, (laughs) you know? Yeah, thank you. (laughs) When you were writing that song, baby's got your blue jeans. Blue jeans? Yeah. Yeah. Was there any doubt in your mind, like, because, you know, my wife and I went up to, Tennessee not too long ago. We went to Chattanooga and we went into this bookstore and there was this old lady 
And the first question she asked us when we came in the door, she said, are you conservative? And I, and I said, well, on some things, yeah. And she says, good, because we are. And so I'm wondering, <laughs> was there any doubt about you writing a song like that and trying to get it cut? Yes, of course. But of course there was. It was way too rhythm, way too R&B with that that guitar riff in it and the subject matter and the, all those odd chord changes. But Bill Hall, my the great Bill Hall, Colonel Bill Hall, my publisher, he carried that thing around for probably a year before he could talk somebody into recording it. <laughs> and he finally, Jerry Kennedy took a shot with it on Mel McDaniel, and it was a huge hit, number one record. <laughs> and uh, that's one of those songs people just, they they do not forget it. Well, it was inspired by that little Richard thing, The Girl Can't Help It. So you see how those those things, you look back and you think, well, hell, that's where I got that. I, <laughs> the Girl Can't Help It, Little Richard. So those things stick in your head and they reemerge 20, 30, 40 years later and you only realize it when you look back. The majority of the songs you've had recorded have been recorded by country singers, but there have been a couple of others like the Perry Como cut Sam the Sham and the Pharaohs. Tell the listeners maybe about some of the songs that you've had recorded that you think are good that maybe they haven't heard. Well, Juice Newton uh, recorded some of my songs. She was kind of a pop singer, and some of them really good ones. I'm dancing as fast as I can. The Village Voice did a review of that album, and 90% of the article, that whoever the writer was for Village Voice, he spent 90% of the article talking about that song, which was not even a single out of the out of the album, but I, I was really honored. And I've had some cuts by other, you know, some cuts by some other pop artists, but uh, no big hits. This might be a difficult question, but who would you say is the finest interpreter has done the finest interpretation of a McDill song. Oh, well, I don't want to say. I've got too many people that... There are too many people that have done beautiful jobs. I could name you. Maybe several, but not one. <laughs> Don Williams, Dan Seals, Kathy Mateo, on and on, Bobby Bear. No one, but there are probably several more, too. What did you think on the note of Bobby Bear, of his album, Me and McDill, the, the entire collection of your songs? Well, I just I was disappointed. I don't think there was a big hit in that, but I was really honored, and it was a lot of fun doing it. I was there when we went down to Muscle Shoals and recorded that with Bill Rice and uh, Foster and Wallace and some of those other great pickers down there. It was a lot of fun. Bear's a great interpreter of songs and a great friend of songwriters. Do you still keep up with him? No, I haven't seen him in, well, I guess, a year. <laughs> I need to give him a call. You were mentioning some of the finer interpretations, but has there been a version that really surprised you with what they did with it? <laughs> yeah. The Grateful Dead recorded Nashville, recorded Catfish John and made it into a reggae thing. <laughs> but it was 
it's pretty darn good if you want to dial it up and listen to it. It's but it's reggae. Oh yeah, I've heard it. Something like something like reggae. <laughs> <laughs> it's really different. Yeah. All right. Was there someone you always wanted to write with that you didn't? No. No. The writers I admire most. Paul Simon, Roger Miller, Johnny Mitchell. Those people would be my my top ones, but I never had any desire to write with them. They seem to do very well without my help. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think you and Dylan could have written a great one. <laughs> oh, Dylan, yeah. Put him in that top four, of course. <laughs> <laughs> what would you say is the best thing about being Bob McDill? Uh, the best thing about being Bob McDill? Hmm. Interesting question. Uh, having won my, well, having come here from a little hamlet south of Beaumont, Texas, and with a few hundred dollars and an old Pontiac, and, and uh, made my place in the business, carved out my place. That's nice. I ran into a couple of old friends of mine at the grocery the other day, Billy Swan and Bergen White. Swan was a writer, and He's retired, and Bergen was a great arranger, and really, and he's retired. And we're all about the same age. And I was just thinking that we all came here with nothing and carved out our careers for ourselves and made a living. And that's not everybody can do that. That's true. What was it like when you were inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame? That was a that was an honor. I uh, I think I was put in there with. Uh, Dang, it was way back. I think I was put in there with the, uh, oh, heck, I'm having a senior moment, uh, Blue Suede Shoes, Carl Perkins. Yeah, Carl Perkins and I were putting, the, putting that thing at the same time, and that was that was an honor. It was good to meet him. I had never met him and talked to him a little bit backstage. That's what I remember most about it. I always, at the end of my interviews, I let the guest just address the audience, and it's not limited in any way to music. What would you say to anyone who's tuned in? Oh, gosh. I usually have a bunch of funny zingers that people ask me at the, <laughs> the end of the... I'm often said, what is the... Tell us what the biggest problem facing songwriters today is, and I usually say bad taste in clothing. <laughs> 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 and I think... I don't know. I, I know people who work hard and they... Who knows? I think working hard and networking. You know, you, you, uh, my friend Lang Martin, who's, who was a great writer, he's now retired. He, and this is a little, a little rough, but Lang, someone asked Lang if he had been possessed when he was, and obsessed when he was a writer. He said, yes, you'd better be obsessed because that fellow over there you're competing with would murder his mother for a recording. You, you see what I mean? You have to be obsessed. Yeah. And uh, you, it's not, you can't, it can't be a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> we put all these labels on you. You know, you've, you've worn different hats, mostly songwriter, but you've, you've recorded yourself and you've sung. At heart, how would you describe, how would you define Bob McDill? I have no idea. I haven't done much of that self, much of that. Uh, 
Uh, happily retired, having a good time. <laughs> I have to say, Mr. McDill, it's been a thrill to talk to you. Where are you, Paul? You're in the... In Georgia. Georgia, yeah, you're on the eastern coast, east coast, aren't you? Yep, one hour uh, 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 ahead. <laughs> I see, yes. Well, great, Paul, I, I've, uh, I've enjoyed doing this. Yeah. It's always talk about yourself, you know? <laughs> Oh, one more question, a real quick one. What's the best place to eat in Nashville? Boy, there are so many, I'll tell you. <laughs> Always kind of makes me angry when the, some tourist, some big diplomat comes to town or something, some movie star, and they take him out to the Loveless Cafe for biscuits and sausage, which it's, it's good biscuits and sausage out there, but good Lord, we've got... So many great places named chefs. I, we like uh, Etch downtown. That's Deb Paquette. She's a celebrity chef. And other places. There are lots of good places. There didn't used to be. When I moved here in 1970, gosh, all you know, the people out in West End had their country club, and everybody else had Jimmy Kelly's for steaks and corn fritters and that was about all there was, and now it's it's really a food town. It's a restaurant town. Not bad. <laughs> well, sir, I really appreciate you taking the time. Okay, Paul. Thank you very much. I wish you a wonderful Saturday. I wish you one, too, and uh, I enjoyed talking to you. It was a pleasure. Until next time. Thank you. Bye-bye. Ba-ba, doodly, beep, ba Goodbye.